All right, so this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast, and uh, we're here today with Kelly James Clark, who is a professor, Dr. Kelly James Clark, who is a professor at uh, Grand Valley State University um, at the Kaufman Center for, is it Kaufman Center for Inner? Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Um, You guys have been big supporters of the Same God film, which I'm involved in. I really appreciate that, Kelly. And... uh, and, you know, this, this podcast is all about helping people break through barriers in their life. And, um, you know, I, I thought it'd be great to have you on today. Um, we can talk about Sam God later, but you, you just wrote an article that was really profound, uh, all about the subtle and corrosive power of racial bias. And um, I, I was struck by it. You sent it to me today, and, and I'm happy you did. I, I reposted it. But it's, it's about how hard it is, I think, for and look, we're a couple of white guys. Um, yeah. So it's hard for us sometimes to talk about Black Lives Matter and things like that and not get into trouble because um, because sometimes it's hard for us to recognize the bias in our in our in our own world. Um, and so I wanted to talk about that first, and maybe you could take us through that article a little bit. And we could we could discuss that, and then maybe we could talk about other places where we have bias that that surprises us. One of the questions I've been asking people when they want to get into arguments about black lives matter or do all lives matter or all these different types of discussions. Um, same thing with COVID. We had similar kind of conversations. Uh, my question to people is what do you think your biases are? Because I think, you know, based on and it really struck with the article that you wrote um, when we have a bias, we go off often we'll go off in search of uh, data and, and research to fulfill that bias. It's, not quite the scientific method. <laughs> <No>. the <human laughs> Tell method. us about the article a little bit. But yeah, maybe yeah. we can talk about bias and, and how it how it why it makes it hard for some of us white guys who come from privilege to to miss the fact that there might be uh, systemic racism in the world. Yeah, so I, I I'm going to try to do all this without uh, without memes, uh, and it's <laughs> going to be hard. There's so many memes going around and. Um, and, and I try to avoid those in what I do. And I also try to engage, uh, I should say, uh, I try to engage Republicans and Democrats. I think there's not much civility in, in our discourse. And, um, and it's easy to blame. Right. Uh, and to want to blame people that we think are wrong. And, and here's, I guess here's my key point about bias. I think we're all biased. All white people are biased. Right? And, sure. you know, some people are better at not, showing it than others, but we're all biased. And it would be absolutely crazy uh, if we weren't. So part of the article was to, um, to get us to see that we're all, all biased. And you know, we, we've had systemic racism in part because, um, not that Republicans are so bad, it's that Democrats have ignored it um, too. Right. Um, you know, we, we might be able to find more overt expressions of racism in, uh, in certain people, um, but, most of us have, it's, it's, a, it's been, we've been implicit in various ways in, in ignoring um, the cross people, black, black people. And we ignore them because honestly, we just, our biases mean we just don't hear them very well. And if we hear them, we, we look at them in a certain way. And, um, and, we, and we look at them in a way, certain way that leads, helps us to ignore them or even denigrate them, uh, which is even worse. Right. You, you mentioned in your article this, a friend of yours who's a Republican who said, quick question to my liberal friends, have you ever taken the time to understand why Republicans might vote for Trump? One reason has to do with caring deeply about unborn black lives. Perhaps reflect on this when you engage in a conversation with a conservative in the coming days. 
Um, you said that kind of struck a chord with you and it wasn't a great chord. <laughs> it was a no. little, <laughs> can, can no. you walk us through kind of the problem with that? Well, probably a couple of problems with that statement, but yeah. can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, the, the first thing that bothered me, there, there's a famous um, uh, 19, 1950s philosopher, J.L. Austin, who, who said there's the part, there's the bit where you say things that they say and they're, they end up under, you, in various ways you undermine things that you say. So you might say something with a lot of conviction, but by the time you're done, you really haven't said very much. And, and I, I, that just struck me. I took that philosophy quote out, but it just struck me. He made this great uh, claim to people. He's, he, he was telling his fellow um, conservative friends that um, black lives do matter and we need to pay attention to this. He made a nice quotation to that effect. I like it. I'm in favor of empathy. Uh, and he was creating some empathy. But then the second thing he said was, yeah, but, but what about abortion? And I, I find a lot of the white people conversations uh just man, i gotta close the door here i'll be right That's no problem no problem yeah i thought that was a really powerful um response when um in fact your your comment back was one reason has you know you said while generating empathy is generally good advice it's better in times of crisis to stick to one issue at a time bringing in the abortion issue seems like a dodge diverting our eyes from the original issue and you said i commented one reason has to do with caring deeply about unborn black lives. Honestly, when white people are thinking about the lives of the unborn, they care deeply about, I, I doubt black babies come to mind. If they did, they might care more about born black lives, <laughs> which I thought was pretty, pretty, pretty helpful comment. Yeah, and I, so I didn't mean that just to like to <laughs> put the knife in and twist it, but it was, to me, it, it just showed how powerful uh, biases are and um, and our biases are that we don't think about black, we white people don't think about black babies, uh, born or unborn. When, um, when I, I don't challenge provoked, uh, it doesn't have to be challenged or provoked. It can just be that you're given opportunity to think of a baby. We're going to think of white babies. Cause that's, and, what, that's our family. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, well, and it's not just our family. It's our family most immediately, and it's our tribe. Our like tribe, our, yeah, yeah, sorry, yep. And uh, no, I like that it, it's, it's built into our family, our kin, and it's built into our tribe. So right. there's two ways it's sort of built into us. Um, and uh, and they're built, it's built into us in a really early age. And so we just don't think um, black baby. Um, if you say doll, yeah. for example, you'll think a white doll. Right. And the list could go on and on. I had GI Joes as a kid. I had white GI Joes, right? I didn't buy the black GI Joes. I didn't have anything yeah. against the black GI Joes. They just didn't appeal to me because it wasn't part of the, who I was. Yeah. When I was growing up, there were no black GI Joes. There were, <laughs> or black Barbies or, you know, there, there were no options. But, well, here, here's the sad thing about bias, uh, David, that um, even young black children ascribe negative properties to black dolls. Wow. And, uh, and they do this because um, I, I can say a little bit about why we have these biases. I think human beings are sort of evolutionarily inclined to, um, to identify with their tribes in really deep ways. And so, you know, we've only lived in, human beings have only lived in cities for, uh, since roughly 10,000 BC. So for the right. first 200,000 years of 
I was going to say existence. that it was since the Neolithic period, right? Yeah, we've been in, we've been, yeah, when the, when we finally were able to um, cultivate crops, human beings started living in, in basically in bigger than tribe groups and in more like city groups. But for our two, first 200,000 years, we were in roughly uh, uh, tribal groups of 35 to 50, roughly. And uh, we were often in competition for scarce resources. And so um, we, we had to know who was in our group and who wasn't in our group. Right. And we had to know it quickly because people in our group were family. Uh, they were friends. They were good. They were um, cooperators. And people in our out group were most immediately enemies, right. uh, competitors. I mean, we might not use that word, but so we had to know immediately, like who's in our group, who's out of our group. And it, uh, it turns out, um, well, early kin groups, uh, sorry, early tribal groups probably looked close to one another. So you couldn't do it by skin color. We, we might think that, but that's, that's everyone, was, everyone came from Africa, right? We were all the same skin yeah. color. Yeah, everyone was roughly the same, but it turns out, so I, so I think it's why groups developed uh, uh, scarification, why they would scar themselves certain ways. So you could know who's in and who's out and you could know immediately um, uh, tattoos. Uh, I think it explains why uh, human, early humans probably had tattoos or maybe half of their face was painted blue or a certain hair cut, but it also, uh, accents can get slightly different. Right. And I don't know if you remember the biblical story with, um, oh shoot, now that I want to tell it, I can't remember it. But to get over the bridge in the Old Testament, you have to be able to say uh, uh, a certain phrase. I can't remember the phrase. This is in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Old Testament. To cross a bridge, they make you say something. Uh, and it's a famous, you know, it's like Rumpelstiltskin or something. I just can't remember. What's the anyway, Billy Goes? You're not confusing the Billy Goes Gruff with the Bible, are you? Yeah, I'm yeah, probably. No, 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 I'm joking. I don't remember this there's story. A lot of, there's a lot of levels of inspiration. Uh, <laughs> so I, anyway, it's a it's a word. Uh, well, well, so here's here's an example, a similar example. During World War II, um, the Dutch would make people say, um, oh, "What's it's, it's a, there's a seacoast city that's really hard to say if you don't speak Dutch. It, Germans can't say it." Yeah. Um, I'm trying to, because they have that, this more guttural, you know, um, tone. And so one of the ways that they would out, um, you know, spies and things like that is they would ask them if they'd been to this town and kind of get them to say it. And if they couldn't say it with a Dutch accent, they'd kill them. Yeah. Say, I mean, that's, and that's it. Uh, that's the Old Testament story. It's, uh, to me, that's the point of the Old Testament story. Of yeah. People might not see it as if you said it right, they knew you were in their tribe. If you said it wrong, you weren't allowed to cross the bridge and right. you were probably killed. Uh, it. We also, um, we use smell. We can tell who's in our group and who's not in our group. I, right. I remember um, we had a Chinese student live with us for a while. And, and when we were gone for um, Christmas, he stayed here and then we came back. And I live in Michigan for everybody out there. And, uh, it <laughs> You're was in West Michigan, probably, Grand Rapids area, right? Yeah. yeah. It was probably five degrees when we came back and all the windows in our house were open and we had a whole house fan that was on that we we use in the summer to cool the house down we we have never used it in the winter and um so i said jackie what's going on you got the whole house fan on he says oh he says i put it on for a couple of days you know your house stunk and i and it's i think the point is you know he grew up in a different culture where they cook different food and different yeah. things smelled good to him and we 
we know, we can tell that people smell slightly different. So there are all sorts of little clues that human beings are really highly sensitive to. So, so here's the bias part. Um, you and me smell the Chinese stink. You know, people that aren't in our color group stink. You right. and I good, Chinese bad. You and I, and the list could go on and on. The bias, so the way biases work is we, people who, are, who look like us right. are good, safe, uh, friend, cooperator, uh, people who don't are enemy, bad, and the list could go on and on. And you can find, you can take tests to, to tell these. If, if um, Harvard has online implicit attitude tests, IAT, you can take one, anyone can take them online. Millions of people have taken the tests and you can find out what your biases are. Oh, that's really interesting. Say it again. Is Harvard has the internal, what is implicit it? Implicit association test. I'm going to take that in, implicit association test, and that's on the Harvard website. Yeah. Harvard.edu. Yeah. And you, know, you can take them on many topics. I can give you an example about uh, uh, women. You can find out um, that everyone has biases against women, including women. Uh, so, what, what you do is you associate certain things. So, we associate, and the test helps you see this we associate man with doctor, man with carpenter. Uh, Nurse, man with engineer, teacher. but we associate yeah. woman with nurse, woman with uh, housekeeper, woman with, right, um, and the list could go on and on. And so we have lots of gendered associations, and we default to those. Like there are sort of in instinct, we default to those. And you can take oh, yeah. them on racism, blacks. You can take them on Arab Muslim. When I teach a class on um, religious violence, I have my students take the test and see how they do with Arab Muslim. There are a lot of different sort of standard uh, uh, biases that people have and you, and you can take the test and find out what they are. Well, it's, it's kind of amazing. You think about, I was talking to, um, I think you know my wife, Sarah. She was, I think she may have had you in, at, when you were at Calvin. Um, I was only there for a year. I was a philosophy major, but I, uh, I, I, I didn't have you for professor, unfortunately. But um, the, uh, you know, the, I was talking to Sarah's dad, Barry Copes, who's, you know, he's been a headmaster. He's got a PhD in education, but a headmaster, you know, at Lexington Christian Academy and Eastern Christian and different private Christian schools. And we were talking about, see, I was born in Detroit and then we lived on the East Coast in Baltimore and DC, where my dad was in medical school and we weren't, didn't have much money. And so, you know, we lived in mixed neighborhoods and, um, you know, so most of the kids when I was little were different colors than me and different very different culturally than, than my family. I thought being white and blonde haired, you know, and I uh, was just really strange. And then we came, we moved back to West Michigan, or it's where my dad was from. And you know, all of a sudden he has a practice. We have a house on a lake and, you know, the world just seemed like it got upgraded for us. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I remember was going to Grand Haven Christian school where it's all these Dutch Christian reform kids. So it's not only that you're white, but you're Dutch background, same churches. I mean, everything could not be more similar. And on one, on one way, I was like, wow, this is so much nicer. There's no like conflict over little cultural differences. And as a first grader, I remember, remember just feeling that, right? But then the other thing I noticed, like within, probably within a year or two, and I asked Sarah's dad if he noticed this too, was, you know, I looked like everybody else. I spoke like everybody else had the same DNA. But man, I, did, I didn't quite fit in. I couldn't quite put my finger on why these other kids saw me as an outsider, even though I was so similar. And I asked 
Barry about that on his podcast. And he, so he came from, uh, they lived on the West Coast and then he, they were on the Indian Reservation in Rehoboth with the Navajos. And um, so he had come from there to Calvin. And he said, yeah, he goes, you know, you might think you look like them. You might think you're one of the, the West Michigan Dutch Christian Reformed tribe, but if you're not born into it, there is definitely a distinction <laughs> like, between us yeah. and them. And it's, it's amazing how good we are at it as, as humans. You know, I don't think it's special to white people. I think everyone does this yeah. as a human being. But, um, but I think what this, this whole, you know, um, all, the, all the protests and all the conversations and all the kind of unveiling has, hopefully it's, you know, there are people using the term woke, but it's kind of people are becoming aware. And I think to your point in your article, you talk about the fact that, um, you know, you won't see this bias in yourself. It's kind of, it's subconscious and implicit. So unless you're actually looking for it intentionally, you won't see it. You had a, you had a quote in there about how, you know, for example, the Trump supporters who, who may have some racist tendencies or don't see the systemic racism. Um, it's not surprising, right? No, no, no. The, um, so, uh, there've been lots of really interesting studies. Uh, uh one uh, some guy that works at Google that they just let do whatever he wants and he mines a lot of data at Google and what he does is he figures out from what what people search for what's really moving them so I'll just give one example he found out in the south that um, you know like 0.002 percent of people that live in Alabama say that they're gay um, and that doesn't seem right since we know you know, probably two to three to four. I mean, we don't know the exact percentage, but it isn't 0 0.002. So there's, right, there's right. what people say when you ask them. Right. But then he looks at what Google people search it. for. Yeah, yeah. And the exact same percentage of houses are searching for gay porn in Alabama <laughs> or in any other place. And so... Wait, does gay porn make me gay? Uh, <laughs> I, I think that you probably wouldn't be inclined to watch gay porn if you weren't, if you were gay, <laughs> right. that way. At any rate, he what he's able to do is figure out, I think the book is something like everybody lies or something. Yeah. Like yeah. That. Yeah. So he's, he's looking at the searches that people do versus he how looked, they express themselves. Right. Yeah. And so he could, so he looked at searches and he, he basically figured out from lots of searches that, um, that Trump voters track racism and he can look at sites that they look up. There's racist sites that people look up. He might think I'm, Super racist because I look a lot of because I try to find out what's what are people looking at what influence do what does white I, I work on terrorism so I look at white terrorists so he might even think I'm a terrorist but um, anyway I look up a lot no of these things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. anyway he, and he can figure out like from a debate what what really got people what got people's attention he can figure out from a debate like what they run out and search that night right and the, and he figured this out. Other people have figured this out. The single biggest factor in moving people to Trump for, uh, vote for Trump, and this won't be a surprise for you or probably a lot of people in your audience, uh, was race. Uh, the, it, honestly, it wasn't about black so much as um, Muslim and Mexican, which <laughs> lumps you know everybody from- Anyone south of the US is Mexican, yeah, right? Yeah, they're all Mexicans. Um, <laughs> Those are the, and, and the, it plays on people's fears and our biases often track our fears. Um, and uh, anyway, they figured that out, but you, there is not a single Trump person in America that thinks they're racist. If you ask them, right. um, 
why did you vote for Trump? They won't say racist. Um, but racism was the single biggest factor, and not by a little bit, but by far. I also think actually that a lot of anti-women uh, biases uh, affected people's votes for Hillary. And um, so men who talk authoritatively are firm, women are bitches. And, right. um, and bitch is negative, firm is good. Uh, and so a lot of people think uh, that Hillary was this really evil person, including Democrats. If you ask them, why did you vote for Hillary? They'll say, um, well, she wasn't Trump. You know, I didn't really want to, but she was the best candidate. A lot of that is due to, I'm not commending Hillary here. I just want to point out yeah. that women are held to an entirely different standard because of our biases. And we don't know it. Like we're, we say a woman's voice sounds whiny if it's high pitched. Right. Um, there, there are all sorts of negative associations um, when women do something than when men do something. And yeah. anyway, I think those two biases affected the outcome of the last election, that and the Russians. But. Yeah, well, and, and I also think, you know, look, I, I think, I think the, this was a very complex election, right? I mean, you had, yeah. um, the thing I like to point out is that Hillary Clinton, unfortunately, couldn't, couldn't, Motiv mo you know, couldn't motivate her base, couldn't mobilize her base. Um, I mean, she had lower, a lower turnout than Obama's second term, which is pretty profound. Um, and in particular, I think the Democratic convention was uh, kind of a horrific event for anyone who, who was a true believer in, in, in the, you know, what the Democrats stand for, the way that Clinton's basically bought the, bought the party and, and ousted Sanders. But, um, and I'm not, I, I'm not a Democrat. I, I'm not a Republican. I don't really care for um, any of the candidates, frankly. Wow. But um, but but I thought that was pretty profound because I think if you know the big key to win a presidential election is you have to mo you have to mobilize your base. Period. And if you can't do that, it's going to be a toss up. Um, and I think what I've been saying is I used to run a lot of campaigns um, in term limits days in the '90s. And you know if you if you look at the at the data from that election. Um, I think anybody could have beat Donald Trump except Hillary Clinton. And, um, and I'm not, I mean, part of it is probably because she's female that probably skewed things. I also just think the Clintons are a loaded, loaded bag of tricks. And uh, yeah. that's, that's a tough one. But um, so I will say this, Trump, Trump was able to mobilize his base and he did it by appealing to people's biases. And, he, he was um, able to mobilize a base, but he didn't mobilize Republicans. I mean, his turnout was, oh, no, he, was he, really he's poor. Got his yeah. base, but uh, yeah. No, you're he, right. He, I mean, if have you read Hillbilly Elegy? No, I haven't read it yet. It's a, it's a great book. I mean, it, it ties into a lot of what you're talking about, which is, you know, it's about a, a family who had moved up a couple after a couple of generations out of Kentucky to Southern Ohio to get, escape kind of the, the cycles of poverty in, in Southern, uh, in, in Kentucky. And, and the problem is that, you know, it's not just the place, it's the people. Right. And so, yeah. you know, this guy grows up with a mom who's on drugs, dad's not around, raised by grandparents, wasn't great. And he, he kind of ends up, you know, puts himself in the Marines because he realizes if he goes to college, he's not going to be successful. He needs discipline in his life, which is pretty aware but um, in, the, in, the, in the intro, he says, look, this isn't a prescription. I'm just trying to explain from my own background what I had to overcome to get out of these cycles that you're kind of encouraged to just participate in and stick with. But the hard thing is to make a decision against it. Yeah. And, um, and that whole story is a story of basically, you know, bias towards 
generational poverty, bias towards a, a tribe, bias towards um, you know doing things um, a very specific way that unfortunately aren't going to bring a lot of success in life, yeah. and um, yeah. and it's really really hard to break that. So I, no, I, I just I thought your article is incredibly profound. I'm gonna, just going to read it one more time the, the title because I'd love for people to read it and and. Uh, think about their own bias. We all have it. The Subtle and Corrosive Power of Racial Bias by Kelly James Clark. Um, I mean, it just a, a huge one for me. And it, it ties into, you know, when we, um, we spent some time together after the Black, I'm sorry, after the Same God film, which is, has some really similar uh, foundational points on, oh, yeah. around bias and race and, and religion and how we view the world and how we can't see bias sometimes in ourselves. Um, you guys, you had helped support us when we screened it in Grand Rapids, and um, and we had a great screening. We sold out two nights, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, it was really, really profound. But, um, you know, one of the things that with that film, which is, you know, a mixture of race and religion and, and all those biases, and, and Wheaton College kind of, I don't think, not even realizing how racist they they were, um, was was talking through that with Larisha, with, uh, you know, after the first tenured African-American professor at Wheaton, um, people don't know the story. She, you know, she was teach. She's a Christian. She's at a Christian college. She's teaching embodied solidarity as a, as a political scientist. It's about putting your body in, in front of people who are, you know, being persecuted. Her students decided they wanted to practice that by wearing a hijab during Advent in solidarity with uh, persecuted female Muslims. And she decided to put one on too with her students. She thought it was a good idea. Posted on Facebook. Short story: is school fired her for it, more or less. Um, what attracted you to that story, Kelly? Um, so, uh, you may not know this, but I wrote a, a blog while it was happening before she got fired. Okay. Because I, I work, I, I, didn't know that. I work, um, as a Christian in, uh, interfaith and I hear over and over from Christians. Uh, I hear them say, um, well, here's the bias. I hear them say Muslims worship another God. And um, in my view, and I have philosophical reasons for defending it, is that there's just one. Like, <laughs> How many gods are, are there? Bad at <laughs> yeah, right. There's only one. Like, what other one are they worshiping? I, my, I, 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 I just I don't you know. and I have a bias that there's only one God, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there might be tons and tons of them. But if you're a Christian, you, you think there's just one. Well, <laughs> right, what right. other one are they Maybe they're doing it wrong. My my view is we're probably all doing it wrong. So, yeah, uh, and, you know, we should be humble. That's my view. But yeah, uh, there's you. just one you. out there, and and <laughs> but I think it's bigotry against Muslims. And here's the, so here's how I think it's bigotry against Muslims. Christians say Jews who don't worship the same way uh, Christians do. They worship the same God. Jews sure. do, but not them Muslims. You know, right, and, right. yeah. You know, and they're all part of the same tradition, so, but not them Muslims. And so I, I made an argument that anybody who's a children of Abraham, child of Abraham, even if, they, even if they're mistaken about what exactly God is like, and like you and I can talk about, you could be talking about Clark Kent and I could be talking about Superman. It's and the so same it's guy. two completely different subscriptions, but it's the same guy, you know. No, Kevin, no, and people listening won't see this, but see, if I put these glasses on, I'm totally- Oh yeah, see? Person. Can't yeah. see me now. No. Yeah. no, but you're right. It's the same person. And I think, you know, and you think about like, I kept going back to in some of the discussions that, you know, in debates that were flashing around this. 
I kept saying, let's just look at what Jesus did with the Samaritans. I mean, literally, this is as close as we can get to how God walked. If you believe that Jesus was God, maybe not everybody believes that, but let's just assume it was for the argument. If that was God walking among us, how did God treat these other people that weren't, you know, apparently getting it perfect compared to, yeah. to the Jews? How did he treat them? What did he do? Did he say, you're not getting it right? You shouldn't worship where you're worshiping. You should all convert to Judaism or you're doing it wrong. Are you going to hell? Yeah, so I'll just put Bible. a plug in here for my, <laughs> yeah. my book, Strangers, Neighbors, Friends. Yes, uh, which I wrote Strangers, with, uh, Neighbors, Friends. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote, uh, it's Muslim, and, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish Reflections on Compassion and Peace. And I wrote it with a, a Muslim friend and a Jewish friend. And my chapters are all on just what you say. My chapters are on what, uh, what did Jesus do when he encountered people who were different from him? And, and um, I think Christians would be shocked if they saw um, how compassionate and inclusive, you know, the kingdom uh, is and is supposed to be. Um, at any rate, so the other thing I so so I wrote that for Larisha, and I'd never met her before. I just I I knew, yeah, I knew the second I heard it, I knew she was going to lose, and because I know that's what I knew that that machine knew, isn't going to tolerate it. Yeah, no, they they were going to rally the they were going to circle the wagons. I knew donors were making phone calls, and I knew that she was. Um, I, 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 figured she was going to lose her job. I figured she was depressed, anxious, not sleeping at night. I mean, I just, and so I, I basically wrote it in defense of her. Um, yeah. It's an issue I'm concerned about because I write about Islamophobia on the part of Christians uh, in the abstract. But when it hit her, um, I just felt like I needed to say something. And so I wrote a blog for the Huffington Post um, on something on worshiping the same God. And I sent it to her and tried to encourage her. And then, but I, I didn't, you know, nothing happened. I met her and at the uh, showing of the movie, and it was really powerful. If you have not seen the movie, watch it. Same uh, God film. Even it's if on you're iTunes not interested right in, it, yeah. it, say that again. Um, it's it's on iTunes right now, actually. Uh, the, the the film's on iTunes. Uh, same God. It's yeah, it's easy to find and download and watch. Yeah, even if you're not even if you're not a religious believer, even if you're not a Christian, you, what if you want to see what goes on in America and a really large percentage of people uh, and people in power. White, these are white people in power. And, and so here's the white part. I think if she hadn't been black or a woman, it, it might have come out different. Uh, well, I doubt it, but, uh, but they, all you need is bias can take you a little bit away from her and then a little bit woman bias, you know, a little bit okay. Black bias, a little bit okay. And then this, that Muslim thing, you add that to it. And it it's like a trifecta of bias. Yeah, I was. Well, and, and I think Michael Mangus, right? Dr. Mangus I mean, I felt, was also eaten. You know, he tried to stand up for her uh, and, and chimed in. And he got treated. He's a white male sociologist. Exactly. At Wheaton, was told, treated completely differently than Larisha. Um, yeah. And, and it, you know, it's funny, I wrote a, a Sojourners article, uh, Wheaton's Orthodoxy Police and the Spice and the Price of Spiritual Bigotry. And it was kind of on based on similar ideas. I was I was saying, you know, um, what, what do we what do we lose when we trade our humanity for social stereotypes rationalized by religious dogma? And I was kind of implying in the article as I was writing it that, you know, Wheaton has had this problem in the past. They have all these biases. They are protecting a dogma that they stand for. 
um, you know, they say for Christ and his kingdom, but it's really for a very specific set of uh, kind of e even sometimes unarticulated dogma that, that, um, that they're standing up for, cultural dogma. But the, the, the thing that I was trying to point out is that I was being gracious and I said, you know, maybe, maybe the white men running Wheaton don't see it in themselves and they think they're standing up for something, but they're really just standing up for their own bias. And I was, I was hoping that it was kind of a, um, an implicit bias. And then the Time article came out when Michael Mangus released the emails with him and the provost, where the provost was really <laughs> objectively, like <laughs> deliberately um, biased, I would say, or deliberately um, sort of racist in there. Uh, it he was, didn't say, he didn't, th I, I, I can almost promise that he didn't think he was. Oh yeah, I'm sure he doesn't think they, this Stan is how, Jones. This I'm sure we're blind sure into our biases. Yeah, and he by the way, everyone who knows Stan Jones, who loves Stan Jones at Wheaton, will tell you he's not racist, he's not biased, he doesn't do that, he doesn't think that way. But then you read the emails and you're like, well, then who the hell wrote these emails? <laughs> I bet a lot of people told you Stan Jones is a good man. Of course, yeah, of course. And yeah. my and according to my article, no one is a good man. We're we're no, we're all just. We're all biased against people who aren't like us. There, there just aren't good men running around out there. And he just hadn't had opportunity to show his racism until that happened. And then, then here's what happens. Then you can find reasons to justify it. Right. Um, that's the conformity bias part. They, they made up their minds. They had a visceral reaction to a black woman wearing a hijab. Um, and I think it's because it's for the same reason that I think I think 32% of Americans still believe that Obama is a Muslim. <laughs> I think that's still the figure, and that's the bias is so powerful against Muslims. Um, and I would guess that many still think he's not an American citizen because he so he's an African, native yeah, African, yeah. and a Muslim, like really bad things. And, well, so, so you know Kathleen Falsani. Do, do you know Kathleen Falsani? Uh, yeah. She was a she was a religion writer for the Sun Times. She lives out here. Her husband. She went to Wheaton with me. Anyways, um, she did it. She has interviewed a lot of people around religion, um, from particularly around Chicago, um, or when they were coming through Chicago. You know, she's close with Bono, Hugh Hefner, lots of interesting people. But she she interviewed um, Obama when he was a state senator. And he spoke a lot more freely about his faith and had very little to hide. I mean, he was, you know, was yeah. South Chicago state senator. And it, it, he has a really compelling story about his faith that you could not make up. And the, the interview is fantastic. It's publicly available. I mean, I would, when people were kind of in the birther thing and saying he was a Muslim, and I'm like, oh, no, my good friend Kathleen Polsani did this great interview. Like, you can read it. If you read it, there's no way you think he's a Muslim. <laughs> but no one wants to read it or hear it, right? Because it doesn't confirm the bias they have. So they want to ignore it and argue rather than, you know, open their eyes a little bit and just, yeah. just read around. Yeah, so I, I, I should say, Dave, because you used the word evidence. When I, when I was starting to write Strangers, Neighbors, Friends, I, I'm a philosopher, so I like arguing. And I, yeah. uh, and I like to argue with people who disagree with me. And, um, but a lot, so a lot of the re social scientific research that came out while I was thinking about writing that book showed that um, people are not just evidence resistant. If so, suppose you and I just take global climate warming, right. suppose you affirm it, I reject it. Uh, if you start giving me evidence, what will happen is you and I might be here, but if you give me evidence against something that I really deeply hold, especially, you know, the more ideological is, right. I get more extreme and more certain. Right. 
and so do you. Like the evidence makes me uh, well, worse. It's because we're building worse walls, right? We're, we're building walls instead of bridges. And yeah. once, once you're building walls, you're invested. You can't help yourself. I mean, here's a, so here's a good, this is maybe a little segue. You know, you, were, you, you, you studied at Notre Dame under Al Plantinga, who's a very famous rationalist philosopher. Um, maybe you have a better way to describe him than I'm describing him. Um, but very famous and, and well-respected uh, philosopher. And you've worked with Nick Waltersdorf again, very, very famous um, rationalist or analytic philosopher. Yeah. And uh, I w when I was at Wheaton um, doing philosophy, Bruce Benson was there. He was a new young professor. He got us all reading continental philosophy, and I fell in love with it. Um, and, you know, we, we, of course, we did analytic work, but I, I really emotionally connected with, with uh, continental philosophy. And so when I got kicked out of Wheaton for poetry and I came to finish at Calvin, I wanted to do an independent study in continental philosophy. And you know, I did, they made me take uh, modern philosophy, which is basically the height of reason. And, yeah. and uh, the thing we used to joke about at, at Wheaton, so, so just to put a little context there, um, we used to joke that the, the philosophy department at Calvin were Alvinists <laughs> from Alvaniga. But it's really, which is all about, you know, how we use reason and, and analysis, which is a really yeah. powerful tool in yeah. the world we live in. Um, but it's also kind of, it's, it's one tool, right? There's a lot of other tools. Based on this, like how often, like what percentage of decisions that people make do you think are actually rational decisions versus emotional decisions that we rationalize later? Well, I think almost all of them are um, decisions we make immediately without right. rational reflection. And right. then if asked, we rationalize them later. I think almost all of them. Yeah. And um, honestly, I don't, I don't like that. Like I wish the argument no, way no, well I, yeah, that we were yeah. all carefully reflective. I just don't think human beings work that way anymore. So uh, I just, the, the word I, about 15 years ago, I started reading a lot of cognitive psychology. I even yeah. work with cognitive psychology. Interesting. I do experiments with cognitive psychologists, and we we look at. Um, I will say, evolutionarily, I think it's a good thing that we we generally have to make decisions pretty quickly. Uh, <laughs> most of the time, we don't have to make any decisions. Like our brain is just doing things for it's us. Categorizing. Like that's, that's where bias comes in, right? It's just categorizing yeah. all the time. Yeah, so I, I don't think biases are bad by nature. I don't really like the word bias, actually. I think um, I think our minds have to categorize and move us without, um, I think our minds would explode if we had to sit around and make rational decisions about everything. That said, I, I don't think we make evidence-based decisions about much of anything, honestly. I think we, we react and then we, and, and, and like we instantly form a belief and then we and it, and it's against the background of all the other beliefs we have yeah that have been encultured to us you know uh, you know when you talk about bias all i've said so far really is that we're uh, we grow up biased towards in group and out group but um our culture has to tell us who's in and who's out right and so our culture has to tell us white good black bad and it doesn't have to do it um explicitly you can just tell by you know children can learn by and it turns out children learn in group out group really early really early right but they do better on these implicit implicit association tests than adults do so we know that ch uh, children don't have these the we know the by the particular biases aren't built in being biased is built in but not 
with respect to race, but not the uh, particular ones we have. We have to learn who's good and who's bad, who's in and who's out, uh, who's up and who's down. Um, and our, so our cultures do that pretty powerfully. Well, then when we're adults, that's all in there, you know, it, it's sort of driving us. And then when asked, we will rationalize it. We'll try to come up with a reason for it. So I, I think we're mostly ex post, fact, ex post facto rationalists, ex post rationalizers, right, right. Ex, post, ex post facto rationalizers. We're not, uh, we're not being driven by evidence. Yeah, it's it's a lot of hard work, right? I mean, that's part of the problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's easy to just kind of respond or react rather than actually deliberately try and think through yeah. an idea and, and do do independent research and see if yeah. we have biases, be aware of the bias, and then figure out what 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 we think's going yeah. on. I mean, the scientific, the real scientific method, has a lot of hammering to get to the to the you know to a, a provable idea. Yeah. Do, um, you know, it's, it's funny, I helped Rob Bell do a um, study guide to Love Wins after that book kind of blew up and there was a lot of argument about it, mostly by people who hadn't read it. Um, and so we did like this. You don't need to read, read it to, make, to come to a considered <laughs> Exactly, <judgment>. exactly. <laughs> Same thing. Why would you read it? You yep. can't come to a conclusion. You already know. <laughs> yeah. So I, I did this comprehensive, so we did this really great study guide that kind of referenced in each chapter the foundation for each of those ideas, the church fathers who had said the same thing, like these aren't, I kind of joked with him when he, when I first came out, I was like, well, you know, this is basically just chapter eight and 10 of the problem of pain by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> this isn't like a big new idea. The way he wrote it was fantastic, but I, you know, it was, and, and obviously um, a little inflammatory to some people, but the, the thing I was, I was talking with my dad about it, who's been like a church elder in the Christian Reformed Church and the Reformed Church, and he's president of the school board and Christian schools, et cetera. And, you know, we were talking about the book and why people are reacting. And he said, well, you know, most people don't show up in a church to wrestle with an idea. Most people show up in a church to get an answer key. And, you know, they, yeah. they just want to know what the answer is. Is it black yeah. or white? Is it true or false? Is it red or yellow? I mean, what's, what, what, you know, what's the answer? And I've kind of come to this conclusion over the years that, you know, maybe, maybe why we're here isn't to come up, isn't to find the right answer. It's to wrestle with the ideas. Um, What's your theory on like, do you think we get to truth? Do we, what, what's, what's truth? Um, <laughs> well, that's How long do we point. have? <laughs> no. uh, I, yeah, I want to say one thing about hell and our biases. Yeah, uh, yeah, jump in, start. This occurred to me when you were saying it. Uh, human beings really want people to be punished. Like we really were. Oh yeah, uh, justice. And, that we and we want heaven to be a narrow place with people just like us. Our tribalism goes all the way into the next life. You know, uh, the the um, you know, early Americans gave a Bible to their slaves. So there's a slave Bible, and you can read it online. There's a museum I had, I think, that has an original one in in D.C. But and it it was basically about all the pro-slavery passages in the Bible, and there are some don't don't think Christianity's uh, all great. There were slavery passages in there. And then, you know, obey your master. And then it talks about the afterlife in there, but it sort of makes it sound like they're going to be, they will be slaves in the afterlife. So they got to get ready as slaves to serve their masters. Yeah. It's totally disgusting. And um, so people use, um, they use the afterlife. And, but what people really like is that people are going to end up uh, in hell and I think what a lot, and I'll just give you an example of how deep our need to punish people is. Um, 
and I, I don't mean to be political about this because Democrats voted for this too, but after 9-11, uh, I think 15 of 17, I, don't, I can't remember the exact number of the 9-11 terrorists were from Saudi Arabia. Right. So by rights, we should have invaded Saudi Arabia. Right. right. Zero. We know zero were from Iraq. Right. And but, or Afghanistan. But we had to get somebody, you know, yeah. we have to punish somebody. And yeah. so we invade Iraq and um, human beings will punish somebody even to the point of hurting them. A lot of bias studies will show that people will, will give up some of their own benefit to make sure somebody gets punished. Right. And um, it's sort of built into us and hell, hell I think is built into us and it builds in our tribalism. We want people like us to get, you know, into the promised land, people not like us, eternal damnation, you know, what the hell, like literally. It's, it's, it's kind of when you talk about systemic, you know, racism and injustice, when, and you, you know, if you, so Kathleen Falsani's husband is Maury Posley. He won a Pulitzer at the Chicago Tribune for his, his you know, his investigative uh, journalism. And he works with the Innocence Project, which is all about helping people who are innocent get off death row. And they've gotten over a thousand people off death row through DNA evidence, through kind of incontrovertible evidence. And if you ever talk to him about, you know, prosecutorial misconduct or police misconduct, it's systemic. Um, yeah. And I think it's yeah. systemic for the reasons you're talking about. It's if you talk to those prosecutors or those police officers, do they think that they're, are they waking up in the morning going, I'm going to put some innocent people in jail or, or kill them? No, they're saying somebody's got to pay for this. We're going to, yeah. we're going to process, you know, I want convictions because convictions means justice in their minds. Even though if you're convicting innocent people and to the rest of us, it really feels like injustice, I think. Um, a prosecutor says, my job isn't to worry about whether or not this person's innocent or not. I'm, I'm trying to find the most likely person who did it, bring them to justice, bring them to court. And if they have a good defender, then, you know, then, then the courts will decide. Maybe I'm simplifying that. But, you know, the, the point is that if, if, if that's true, which what, what you're saying is true, then it makes total sense that we would have systemic racism, systemic injustice yeah. built into our legal system, which it appears that we do. Yeah, I think um, I think black people are believed to be by nature violent, so they're more likely to be criminal than a white person. Uh, they're they get um, they're more likely to be convicted. Yeah. Uh, if they end up uh, going before a judge, they get longer sentences than white people get. At they're at every level, uh, there's bias, and my guess is most of those prosecutors make up their mind pretty quickly when the police come and say, "Look." Uh, well, he wouldn't be here if we didn't have some good evidence. And then what do you do? You, you use conf uh, confirmation bias. You find evidence. You dig it yeah, you're, or you make right. it. Some of them manufacture it. Right? Yeah. And they may manufacture, but probably they think the guy probably did it. So, you know, who, who cares if they do it? And but, so I, I honestly don't think that many people think that they're being biased when they're doing this. They think that they're being when they're doing it but that's the that's the same article that would be the subtle and corrosive power it's subtle we don't see it we don't admit it we don't talk about it uh, but it's there it's influencing uh, everything in our relationships with people who are different from us and then the corrosive power is it it uh if we let it come out and act on it it it's unjust what we do if, then we don't see that like that doesn't we don't see that's unjust um we think what we're doing is justice um, are, so it's a vice, but it looks great. Uh, Nietzsche called them glittering vices. 
<laughs> right. That we have vices, but we think they're virtues. And right. um, anyway, I, well, there was another question about, we, we got off target here a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I think they are glittering vices. I think you're right. I think I, what, what I was hoping, you know, part of the reason I thought in, you sent me this article today, we've, we've uh, been in contact since the same God thing. And, and it's been, it's been really good to have these conversations. And when I, when I was reading that today and I was thinking, you know, what can, so I was supposed to do a, uh, an interview this weekend, last weekend with um, where the, the company I'm at now, New Age, uh, we have, uh, we have the largest, probably one of the largest African-American populations working in direct selling in the United States and or at least the highest percentage of our business um, in, in the U.S. And so I've been working with a really great group of um, African-American leaders who are crushing it right now. We're doing a really, uh, we're doing a, I'm, I'm excited about a, a yeah. whole thing we're doing this month with them, um, not only to give to to do more for African-Americans in the United States, but also to um, adding equity to it, meaning, you know, shares in our company to try and not just make, you know, put more money into to black entrepreneurs' hands right now, but actually contribute towards ending generational cycles of poverty and things like yeah. that. And it's totally a way that we can kind of do There's no, no substitute for it. Yeah, so anyways, I was talking with them and we were supposed to do an interview this last weekend and, um, a couple art art lee and valencia pamphill and valencia's mom got sick so we couldn't do it and i was like man i really want to say do something about this this week um with you know in a way that would be unique and work for this podcast and so when you sent me that article i thought well here's something a couple white guys can talk about <laughs> and talk yeah. about our own bias um tell me a little more like tell me tell me um so there's there's a test you can take at with the harvard with at harvard the um the implicit uh Association, association test, IAT. Yeah, association test. Um, what are some other ways that people can identify their bias or dig into their bias or look for their bias? What are some of the things that you've you've done or you've practiced? Um, I so um, I, I I should say that most of my um, anti-bias work that I've been involved in in the past decade or so has been in, uh, with Muslims. I mostly work with Muslims from all over sure. the world. And uh, I've made friend, a lot of friends. With, I, you know, I have hundreds of Muslim friends now. And, um, and I had, uh, and my guess is you had it too if you were raised in a conservative Christian environment. I had really deep anti-Muslim, like Muslims were the worst. I thought Catholics were really bad, actually. <laughs> you know, I went to Notre Dame, and, but uh, in the church I went to in, uh, when I was in college, you know, it's hard for people to believe how um, divided uh, Christians have been. And so in 63, we got a Catholic president and um, he had to prove that even though he was Catholic, he, he would still be okay. Like we, we had never had a Catholic president and Protestants were really fair. Yeah. They were, they were afraid he might just do whatever the Pope said. Right? And um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, so then I, uh, the church I went to was very conservative and anti-Catholic. So I, like, I thought all Catholics were going to hell. Then sure. I went to Notre Dame and, uh, and I, um, and that sort of bias went with me, but then I met people from Notre Dame and, um, and I resisted, but I found that I could, by, by meeting people, I found I just couldn't keep up thinking. Uh, I couldn't think 
less of them. I couldn't think less of them spiritually. I, there are lots of ways we think less of people, but in this case, spiritually. Um, and, um, you know, I met Irish people, you know, I couldn't think that they were all alcoholics and they all drink. I mean, I mean, it is a high percentage, but yeah, no. (laughs) Yes. And, uh, and the same happened when I started to meet Muslims. And fortunately, a lot of good Muslim friends, um, I would write things and ask them to read it. And they'd say, you know, that's pretty Islamophobic, that thing you said. (laughs) And thank God, you know, they took the time to, uh, they were good enough friends and gracious to, uh, let me give you an example. So anyway, I, I think the number one thing people need to do is meet each other. Like, yeah. Uh, and not meet, just meet, not meet to talk about race, but, uh, I don't know, go to what we do sometimes is we have, um, people come together and, uh, in different faiths and, um, and they build a house, uh, like Jimmy Carter does, but we do it with faith. And then when people are pounding nails with a hammer, you got a Muslim and a Christian sitting right there and they could be as bigoted as they want. And pretty soon they're going to say, you know, how's the wife and kids or whatever. And yeah. you find out other people are human beings. I think that's the biggest thing. We have to meet people who are different and not under the worst of circumstances. We need to, we need to be more uh, intentional. But I, so I directed the very first workshop I directed with Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Um, I had two Iranians who are cultured not to like Jews. Yeah. And I had, um, I don't know, a half dozen Jews who were from Israel, who lived in Israel. And Iranians hate Israelis, Israelis hate Iranians. And uh, we met in Kalamazoo at the Fetzer Institute and they have a retreat center and we all lived together. People shared rooms together. So Muslims and Jews had to share rooms. We took our meals together and at the beginning of the week, all the, the, the two Iranians sat together by themselves. And then there was a line of Jews that were sitting there. By the end of the week, people were moving around, sitting with other people. And, um, but about halfway through one of the, um, I think about an 80 year old Jewish physicist actually went up to one of the young Muslims and was shaking his hand and looking at him. This has been such a great week, but he goes, the 80 year old Jew goes to the Muslim and he says, you want to kill me, don't you? And a number of us heard it like gasped, you know, we thought, but honestly, I like these things to come out. If people have, yeah, it's better to express our biases and let them come out. And then, and it's in a safe place. Yeah. Yeah. And my Muslim friend was so gracious and, um, and explained no and why by the end of the week, that Jew was hugging. He initiated the hugging of the, awesome. the Iranians at the end that's of the That's amazing. Week. Yeah, no, yeah. that's, so I, I, I work with, you know, business, small business owners, entrepreneurs around the world. Um, you know, I've worked in over 60 countries and uh, everywhere I go, you know, I've, it's been, it's been a, a real gift because you start to realize like skin color, how your eyes look, yeah. what you yeah. worship. We're all people underneath it. We all kind of want the same things more or less. And, uh, like to say we're all made out of people yeah. and the um one of the so i was in we had, I had business partners in in the middle east uh in in the uae and and uh doha and in in, in in Qatar, and you know they they brought me that they wanted to show me they're, they're palestinian um jordanians so natively their families originally originated in palestine and then when 
nation of Israel happened, they got kind of booted out, moved to Jordan. And they're very connected in, in the Middle East. And um, so anyways, I was, I was in this mosque with them. And they're very, I would say they're kind of secular, uh, quasi kind of semi-religious Muslims. Yeah. And um, so we're in this mosque. And I've been through many mosques. And, you know, especially when I'm traveling and have, you know, many, many Muslim friends in different parts of, of Asia and in the Middle East. So they, I know what they're doing. They said they wanted me to say, um, Muhammad is God and Allah is prophet in reverse in Arabic, um, but they weren't telling me that, right? They're like, hey, David, say, and I can't remember how to say it now, but you know, they, I knew what they were, they were kind of getting at. So I went along, I was like, you know, da, 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 da. And they're like, ah, you did it. You just said that, now you're Muslim. And I'm like, of course I'm Muslim. Why would I not be Muslim? I mean, I'm Muslim, I'm Christian, I'm Jewish. I'm, what do you got? Like, sign me up, I'm in. Like, I just, at this point in my life, I, I just, I'm pretty sure, and Billy Graham said this, he said, you know, after he had traveled the world a lot, he kind of, his, his kind of position softened and he, he said, yeah, I'm pretty sure we're all going to be really surprised when we get to heaven. Yeah. Well, I think we will too. Yeah. yeah. And you Peter know, I, said that too. I mean, a lot of great scholars have said that. I, my, um, my first trip to Indonesia, I, I met with a guy and, uh, he explained to me and he, he's a really devout Christian and, um, but he, he works he worked with uh, Abdurrahman Wahid, who was the first democratically elected president of Indonesia. And Abdurrahman Wahid is also, was, he's, he's passed away, was the leader of the biggest Muslim organization in the world. And um, it's an organization famously devoted to tolerance. And so yeah. this really wealthy businessman, he made some big discovery in technology, made $50 million, and then he just moved to Indonesia most of the time. And now he works with Muslims uh, for peace. Anyway, I'm, I'm up for, I wanted to meet this guy. I'd heard about him. I wanted yeah. to meet him. Like, how, how do you, how do you look at this? How do you negotiate? But he, he told me this, that, um, that Islam just means submission. And uh, anybody that submits to God, you know, mu you know Muslims are no better than we are at, uh, at following what our religious leaders really told them, you know, um, right the uh, at any rate in principle they should think in the quran says anybody that is sub submits to god is a muslim you, and you don't have to believe you don't have to say that one thing that they say you know yeah. just submit to god so christians submit to god jews submit to god uh, hindus submit to god um and uh you know not the another thing that's you know traveling is awesome for people i totally recommend it if you want to um, get a better view of yourself and your country and the world, I beg my students to go yeah. to some country and see the U.S. from the outside. I beg them to take a trip overseas. But um, I, I, I recently uh, published a book on the Gospels with a guy that does biblical literature. And all I can say is I, I didn't realize until I did that how Jewish Jesus was. <laughs> I thought like Jesus was the first Christian you know, and, <laughs> he just forgot. To, he just forgot to tell everyone to name it after himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He made a big mistake. You know, he needed a marketing director. Saint Paul did his best. Uh, and I and I like G. I, honestly, I like Jesus a lot better when I started to understand what he really said and not what uh, white Western Christendom uh, said when they allied Christianity with power. Like I, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, 
I actually call Black that Playboy Jesus. It's the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, right? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. we all recognize. Yeah. You know why? I, when I was doing <clears throat> work on these bias studies a few years ago, my my students got really mad at me when I told them this. But white uh, men in America feel like they're the most persecuted men in America, most persecuted people in America. I think that drove a lot of the Trump voting, right? I mean, it was people <laughs> yeah. feeling persecuted and got you know, getting very tribal rather than some kind of overt intentional racism. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they, you know, men, I think people think that justice is a zero sum game. So that if right. blacks start to be treated fairly, it means whites are like they lose. Like there's always a loss if women get some right. There's always right. a how loss it, if Muslims do. Yeah, how is it we can't, that we've, we're supposed to believe in creation of wealth when it comes to economics, which by the way, not a lot of people really believe or practice, but. And then we, then we don't believe it when it comes to things like love, justice, grace, peace, compassion, like all the most important things. Yeah, no, it, people get greedy and stingy um, yeah. uh, when it comes to these great virtues. And, um, but, you know, I, I like what you're doing with your business. So I, you know, I argue in the article that we need to improve. We, nothing will change until, um, the, here's the problem with systemic bias, we keep, um, people in poverty, in permanent poverty. Um, we don't just keep it. They're, they're part of it too. You know, that's the Hebrew, uh, sorry, the hillbilly elegy part. Uh, everybody's complicit. In right. the, um, and no one wants to keep, it's not like everyone's thinking, I want to keep these people down there. Um, but, but we know, so here's our better self. Our better self is people shouldn't live in poverty. Um, people shouldn't be killed by police. Like we know this, our better self knows this. Our, we have our bias self, but our better and our bias self is more instinctive, you know. But our better self tells us that justice and compassion should win. That's what our better self tells us. And it, it needs to start working against more self. We need to start working more self-consciously against our biases and finding ways to get people out of poverty. So I argue and defend. I argue about what we might need to do for education to improve. Um, to me, the number one way to get out of poverty is to get an education. So, um, but that's not the only thing. Um, no, no, there are no. lots of things. And, and why is that? Is that because it generates awareness in the in the person that there's other paths, there's other ways? There's other oh, no, I, I just mean for the people in poverty, they're, if they can't read and write, right, they're not right. They are not going to get out of poverty. You know, if they can't read a book and write a coherent sentence, um, they aren't going to get out. For people... Uh, for people who are already doing great, they, they need to sympathetically realize that there are people that, um, that have been hurt. Sure. You know, we, we, we have benefited by um, slavery, Jim Crow laws, paying people very little money sometimes. There are all sorts of ways that people on the top have benefited from keeping people on the bottom. Um, and and we, we need to find ways to sympathetically see that it's not good for everyone to be on the bottom. And part of education can, can be to do that. Sadly, most universities are getting rid of humanities and just continuing to train people in technical skills. Yeah. And uh, not, not the heart. The heart's not getting trained. You know, I was um, about 10 years ago, we had some problems with our police locally here in Laguna Beach. And uh, a friend of mine in the Netherlands is Bert Wyvinga, who is deputy chief of police of Amsterdam, chief of police of Flevoland later. I think he's currently the head of housing in the Netherlands. He's a PhD in criminal justice, really bright, 
thinker, um, somebody I met casually and, and became friends with, but he, um, I reached out to him because I said, look, I'm really confused. Like when I'm in the Netherlands, if I'm going to a big outdoor event or like, you know, world cup party or something, you know, in the U S the police would be confrontational. They'd be shouting at you. The Netherlands, they're like, Hey, you know, friendly, you're going to walk over here, make sure you finish your drink. We don't want to take it from you. We want you to have a good time. They, the way they engage you, you want to do what they're asking you to do versus when I'm in the U S oftentimes the way the police engage you, is confrontational, it's, it generates conflict. Uh, if you're a person like me, who's a little bit um, yeah. Yeah. You know, a Some people don't like that. <laughs> yeah, if, if you have a strong personality, maybe you're like, fuck you, that's not what I wanna do right now. Yeah. Um, not because I don't wanna do it, but because of the way you, you, you approach me with it. And, and I asked him about that, I said, you know, am I getting this wrong? And he said, no, he said, look, to be a cop in the, in, in the Netherlands takes four years. And he said, most of our training is in social management, um, how we get people to, to work with us. He said, we get, we get very good technical training, but we feel like if we go for a gun, we failed. He said, in the United States, you get about six months, especially small local police departments. You know, they don't get a lot of training. He said, no. you almost get no social training. And, you know, he said, so, you know, you're going to attract people who want to be in power. You're going to attract people that like to use guns and fight and, and assert themselves. And you've just trained them only to do that effectively. So it's not terribly surprising that that's how they react and respond when somebody doesn't do what they say to do. So another friend of mine and I, we had, we, I was writing a column in the local paper at the time, we were working with the city council on a number of things. And I said, hey, why don't we create a partnership with the Netherlands with this great police chief, you know, who's like PhD, he's brilliant, they do all this great work, he can help us. And literally like the chief of police who is not a great person, um, at the time we got him replaced, but he, uh, you know, he, he just did not want nothing to do with that. And yeah. I think, you know, I'm sure that maybe we didn't put enough sugar on it, but the, uh, you know, he, he could not see that they were doing anything wrong because of how, and he was an older police chief at that point. He thought that we were just too soft and didn't understand policing. And, um, and, you know, I think, I think now we're kind of waking up that, you know, Police violence is a huge problem, particularly when you compare America to the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and uh, and how we, you know, there's this whole argument about defunding the police right now, which it really just means reprioritizing where we put resources. So we're not just putting money in confrontation in prisons, but we're putting money into other social programs. You know, Jim Collins says you have to create a not to do list if you're going to change how you do things. And uh, yeah, it was just it was fascinating to me that a lot of people only see police one way and there's only one way to do it. And if you're white, you know, I'm never worried about getting pulled over and shot. No. If I get pulled over, it's going to be a decent conversation. Most of the time it might not be the nicest conversation I have, but no one's going to pull a gun on me. But if you're black in America, uh, there's a whole, there's a whole process you have to go through basically yeah. not to get brutalized. Um, what do you think about the, uh, you know, the, the police issues, police violence, police bias, do you think it's, I mean, there's obviously there's African-American police, there's white police, there's different types of police. What do you, what, uh, any thoughts on, on the bias there and, and does it exist? Yeah. Well, I, these are mostly white men. I'd be shocked if it didn't exist. I'll just say that. But it, sure. honestly, it looks like there's a sort of macho bullying culture that um, I, I, I don't talk about it in that article. And in fact, I don't talk about police violence really in this. Enough people are talking about it and yeah. it's 
we talk about systemic violence. I tried to raise another issue that I, if it's systemic, like wh what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say that? I didn't want people to, uh, by the way, I picked um, schools because my wife's an inner city school teacher and um, she teaches classes of 38 to 45, but East Grand Rapids, which is right next door to Grand Rapids, every single one of her students lives in poverty that every single one of her students gets a free gets a free breakfast and a free lunch so 100 percent are students of poverty they have the biggest classrooms they're in dilapidated schools they have uh terrible textbooks the computers are awful when they when they tried to um have uh, online schooling it took them two or three more weeks to get things ready because most not most but a lot of their students didn't have computers home computers so but East Grand Rapids and Forest Hills teach classes of 24. Their students all have computers. They have highly educated parents, which is the biggest single right. predictor of uh, academic success. Right. Um, and those parents are encouraging them uh, and helping them and sitting down with them. They know how to use computers. I know there are all sorts of, uh, you know, if you talk about systemic racism, how, how does it work? Well, it mostly tracks poverty, sadly. That's the you had said that in one of the one of the discussions that was going on, in, I think on my page, that poverty is probably the biggest indicator, and then yeah. race happens to be a subset of that, right? Yeah, and so race sadly tracks uh, black and brown in America. Um, right. Uh, sorry, poverty tracks black and brown in America, N not exclusively, but you, the hillbilly elegy reminds us that there are are uh, black people that are involved in systematic poverty as well. Uh, sorry. White, white people, people involved in systematic poverty as well. And that it's like, when you're in, it's really hard to get out. Right. No, I uh, think that's, that's absolutely right. When, when, you know, when our, we started out and we lived in the Napa Valley, our older son was in kindergarten in a, a private Lutheran school. We moved to Seattle and we were kind of late in the season. We couldn't, and Seattle has very competitive school programs. We couldn't get into a private school and we kind of thought that's what we had to do. And, um, so we put him and it turned out we were living in one of the better school districts anyways. So, you know, he's going to, a, went to a great school, but um, we reached out to Sarah's dad. We're like, Oh, is this going to be okay? And he was like, look, you guys read books to your kids. You talk about ideas. You can pretty much put them anywhere. These kids are going to get educated. Exactly. Um, and that's kind of, a, it's just a huge differentiator. Um, and, and, and to your other point, you know, um, I did an interview with, um, Life Builders Detroit. Uh, Sarah and I are pretty involved there. We bought some homes in the, neighborhoods that they're built that they're so they kind of they buy homes they have community programs to help people get on their feet and then they put them in these updated homes that yeah. you know are not not they're they're nice they're not fancy but they're nice they're clean they're they're good homes and um you know so you have this combination of uh programs to develop the community and places to live that are safe and and clean and and uh and, and work well for families and I was talking with one of the founders who came from, you know, Gross Point where I was born, which is a kind of upper middle class white neighborhood. And he, uh, he was saying, you know, the things we take for granted, he said, you know, when I first started this, I would ask people, you know, they'd say they got fired from their job because they showed up late. And he said, how could you be late? You know? And they said, well, you, you know, it takes me three hours on mass transit to get to my job, my minimum wage job. And sometimes, you know, Detroit, sometimes the buses don't show up and then I'm late. I, you know, and, and you kind of think about that for a minute, six hours round trip, and you might miss work because the bus just doesn't get there. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's just, and he said, you know, we also say, well, you just have to go fill out this form online and then you can get this help from the government. He said, there's a whole lot of assumptions there. Can you read? Do you have access to a computer? Do you know how to use a computer? You know, it's just so many different things that, you know, if you're raised in a home where all of that stuff is just assumed, yeah, of course it's simple. But if you're raised in a place where none of that exists, you might as well be talking about going to the moon because there's just no way to get there from here. It's very, very difficult. Um, My wife's father is a physics professor at the University of Michigan. And she, when she was in college, she, she had trouble uh, with her math class in the first year. And her dad said, go get a tutor. Well, she didn't know there were tutors. but uh, And she went and got one, and she passed the math class. But uh, first time in any college, in a family, first time from a family in a college, their parents don't know about tutors. So right. they can't call home and say, I'm failing my math class. What do I do? They, they won't call home. And uh, the success rate for first time from a family in a college is really quite low. Right. And um, and I, I, I'll tell you what I did in a class one time is I had a student that took my class for a second time. I took it, I taught it in the philosophy department and then three years later I taught it in liberal studies and he wanted to take me again and it had a different name so he took me again. Well, he got an A the first time and I said, well, uh, at first I said, I, you probably shouldn't take this class. And then I said, why don't you take this class and be the TA? I'll give you a great, I'll give you an A. I'll tell you right now, I'll give you an A. Here's your job. And he, he was very disciplined. I, I, was, I, I knew he would be fine. But yeah. um, you, you meet with my students who are the first member of their family in college. Wow. And you meet with them every week and uh, you make sure they're doing their homework. Uh, you just like they, you just check in with them. And then, um, for the first exam, uh, you help them prepare for an exam and then you help them with papers. And, but also you just say, every time you say, how are you doing? How's school going? Uh, what are you, and anyway, um, all the students that did that, I had five, I think it was five or six. One of them ended up dropping out. He just couldn't do it and, uh, dropped out of school completely. But the other five, oh, I did it after the first exam. I wanted to see how they did on the first exam. Yeah. Well, the first, whatever the first big assignment was. And then he moved every single student up from F or D to B or better. Wow. Uh, and it's just one simple little thing that people aren't aware of that happens uh, from children, basically children of poverty, children whose parents aren't educated. Uh, you know, you've, you've said several times, you know, I had this question, I, I called my dad. I had this question, I called Sarah's dad. I had this question. Um, kids don't have that resource. It's an awesome resource. Well, we're very, I mean, that's, I, one of my, my college roommate, you know, became a Navy SEAL, uh, did very well. It's the reason we live in Laguna Beach and he was killed, unfortunately, but he, um, you know, he said to me one time, he and his wife came from very affluent families here in Southern California, wife's dad owned a big home developing company. Um, and my college roommate's dad owned most of the MRIs in Southern California in the 80s and 90s. And, um, you know, so they both had a lot of resources, but they were all, both also kind of very proud of the fact that they didn't take money from their families. I mean, they were educated by their families. They were, you know, they didn't have to pay for college, but post-college they worked hard and they, you know, kind of self-made in a way. And, and I was, you know, when we kind of had moved down here and we were spending a lot more time together, we lived across the street from each other. I said to him at one point, I said, I said, Mark, yeah, okay, yes, you're not getting money from your family per se, but 
if you want to start a business, like he was, he had started a, um, a sea defense business with his dad. Um, and, and I said to him, I said, look, one, your father, the physicist is helping you put together your sea defense program Two, if you need to raise any money, you can go talk to your father-in-law and he can introduce you to lots of people who would love to invest in a good idea. I said, you know, there's no shortage of money in the world. There's a huge shortage of good ideas and, and plans that can be executed yeah. well. And, and having access to that, easy access to that, is in probably the most valuable thing you can have. Um, it's probably better than money. And, and I think a lot of us take that for granted when, you know, same thing, for, I, I have no, I, it's very easy for me to have access and to have privilege in those sorts of ways. You know, and our younger son struggled in high school. Part of it was self-inflicted. Um, we had to break some bongs around here. But, um, you know, part of it was just our kids had probably something that I suffered from, ADD and ADHD. They were both diagnosed with it. And so we, you know, we went to psychiatrists, we went to doctors, we got tutors. We even picked, for our younger son, we picked a college in Switzerland that has 11 kids in a class and mandatory class attendance yeah. and, and tutoring. We said, if you do well there, you can go to a bigger playing field. And, and, you know, versus I guarantee you, if he had just gone with his high school friends to, you know, the local JC uh, or community college, it would not have ended well. And, and it's, but it's just that kind of thing. It's, it's when you grow up in it, you don't notice it. But when you work in other communities where people don't have those resources, haven't been exposed to it, don't understand it. It's a totally different set of tools that if you if you don't have them, you don't know how to access them. They just it's almost impossible. Yeah, my um, wife, you know, most of my wife's students could stand ADD medication. Most of the boys, and um, and there are a lot of other things. Being a child of poverty, you know, creates so many other barriers, uh, deficits, and um, you know, without universal health care, they just can't go and get, and they and their parents might not know to uh, to get that for them, and the the schools can't make up for that. You know, there's that there's no making up for it. Especially when you have big classes and short periods of time. We were Sarah and I started watching The Wire during this pandemic. We'd never watched The Wire, and as ah, that's a great show. As my friend Pete Holmes says, there's no way to tell your friends you haven't seen The Wire. So we started watching it. And to your point, it's I mean, it goes through inner city of Baltimore, the police, the guys, you know, the gangs dealing drugs, the un dock worker unions, the I mean, the schools, the the media. It's it's profound, and it. I think it's one of the, I don't know how accurate it is. It seems fairly accurate, but it really gets into these cycles and, and the yeah. perceptions and the bias and the, and the ways that we kind of stereotype the world, particularly from different points of view. Do you have any prescriptions or uh, suggestions or things we, we should be thinking about doing, reading, participating in? Um, well, I, I, I've been, uh, I've been looking at, um, I think people need to see um, if they can't, if white people need to see what it's like. So I like, I watched the movie 13th the other day. And if you haven't seen that. Uh, yeah, tell us about that a little bit. That's, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, it's a movie about the 13th Amendment, which banned um, slavery, uh, except in cases of when people break a law. Uh, but it shows how, um, I, I think there's two things at work in America. One is that we privatized our um, our prison system. So there's incentive to, uh, to make a profit off prisons. And uh, so getting lots of people in prison turns out to be a good thing. And a lot of people are uh, complicit in this. Well, the people that get in there are disproportionately black people. 
Right. And, and we don't look for solutions. Uh, they get longer sentences. They're found guilty more often. We're not looking for non-prison solutions to that. Uh, anyway, so it shows how we may not have slavery, but we still have a really high percentage of, of um, incarcerated black people, people, black people that aren't free. And it's really disturbing and sobering. And one of the worst, uh, um, again, to make this non-political, uh, Bill Clinton uh, dramatically increased the three strikes in your outlaw, disproportionately affected uh, black people, um, increasing the crime for the punishment for crack cocaine and the punishment for cocaine, white people cocaine, black people crack cocaine, right. Uh, the punishments skyrocketed for crack cocaine, and you know it's like ten times as much. I can't remember the exact figure. Uh, so you know, if white people get busted for it, blacks and whites use drugs about the same number of people, the same percentage in their groups, but black people are way more likely to get um, arrested or in, in, in to get a, arrested for a drug for using drugs, and then. If it's crack, then they get longer sentences. Uh, if they use a drug, they're more likely to be convicted. If it's crack, they're going to get a much longer sentence. Anyway, there are all sorts of ways systemic racism affects freed slaves and, and how it's, uh, we've ended up with a whole group of people who aren't free. It's a documentary. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think uh, there's, there's what, like 13 or 14% of the population now is African-American, and but about a third of the prison population is African-American. It's almost yeah. double the actual yeah. per capita percentages. Yeah, and we have way more people in prison than any other, um, you know, uh, highly educated Western uh, country. Right. We, uh, we, I don't know, we like, uh, we use, we just use hammers when, when we should be using all sorts of other tools to try to, um, to make, to, to help people flourish in our society. We don't look at it that way. Um, we look at uh, we look at society not as a way to increase justice and compassion and uh, and uh, help people. And by the way, I, I'm not against police. I'm not against. Of course, no. We all need police. There are people no, that need to be put away. No doubt about it. But um, the way we do things is way too blunt an instrument. Um, I think for a just and flourishing society. Yeah, no, I. I fundamentally agree. I, I think we've got a lot of room for improvement and hopefully uh, we're starting to see that as a, as a, as a community. I, yeah. you know, there's a social fabric we have to maintain in order to have the freedom yeah. and liberty that we do. And, and it's been fraying, I think, lately. And I, I'm very bullish that these protests and the kind of the conversations that are going on are waking people up that we need, we need to rebuild this fabric and we are going to have to do things differently if we're going to weave a society that will support the freedoms that we're accustomed to. Yeah, and and freedom for everybody. The right. uh, you and I do pretty well, um, <laughs> and and there are people that don't, and we need to make sure that it's freedom and justice for all, and uh -huh. uh, and that takes a lot of work. Absolutely, Absolutely. And, th and maybe this will be the thing to get us to do it. You know, the the discouraging thing for me is that. Um, uh, I lived through the 67 riots and, and no, things have gotten better. There's just no doubt about it. Things are uh, better for a black person in America. And, and, and then they're not. Um, right. we, we still don't have uh, liberty and justice for all yet, uh, for all black people. 
and most black people live in some kind of fear uh, right. because of it. And um, and so uh, Rod, the Rodney King riots, uh, we went through those. I, I just hope that, as I say in the article, when the last ember of this protest goes out, that we don't just go back to the status quo, that this, this is the time we finally say, we got to do something and something significant, not just, we're not going to paper over um, the systemic racism and make it look pretty. Um, what we're going to do is really dig down deep and try to get at some of the roots and see if we can make, make the U.S. better. So Kelly, if people want to find more about you and your work, you've got this new article out, The Subtle and Corrosive Power of Racial Bias. Um, you've got a book that just came, it came out fairly recently, Strangers, Neighbors, and Friends. Yeah. You've got a lot of books you've written, but that's one of the most recent ones on some yeah. of these biases. Where can people find out more about um, things you've written? I, I guess they can go to your Wikipedia. You have a great Wikipedia page, Kelly James Clark. Oh, yeah. Do you have a website? That. I have a website. It's kellyjamesclark.wixsite.com. How do you spell Wixsite? W-I-X-S-I-T-E. Okay. Kelly James Clark at Wixsite.com. Wixsite.com. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll I'm not good at marketing. I ended up with a crappy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad website, but uh, I don't. I don't have a catchy little. Uh, we'll put the link in in the yeah. in the information on this yeah. podcast. All but, right. Um, Thanks. Well, uh, I really appreciate the time today. Thank you for kind of jumping in uh, at the last minute. We'll we'll do more of these. This is good. And uh, and I, I again appreciate you putting all the effort out and and the article, the subtle and corrosive. Uh, power of racial bias. Sorry, am I getting it right? The subtle and corrosive yeah. power of racial bias. Yeah. 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 Um, it's on my, I just posted, we'll put the link in for that as well. Really great read. It's a short one, but a powerful one. And uh, I also recommend strangers, neighbors, and friends. So we'll, uh, we'll do that. And we'll also watch 13th. 13th is such a great film. Um, yeah. I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate right. you. Good uh, talking with you. Thanks for having me. You bet, Kelly. This has been the Kick Aspirational Podcast. Uh, you know, whatever you do this week, please get out there. Be Kick Aspirational. This is not a kick the spectator sport. Break through some barriers and uh, read some things that might surprise yourself. Thanks. Yeah, amen. <laughs>